perspective, that's not the person I'm talking about. about. The person that I'm talking about actually here on Clubhouse talking about it. I mean, so I, I don't know who this is that you're talking about, and the fact that the fact he wrote he wrote the book. uh, The guy guy that was here. No, I'm saying that I'm not sure the rabbi you're talking about. Yeah, that Alan F. Siegel's work is considered the. the cornerstone of all uh, two powers yeah, theology yeah, in the yeah, second yeah. temple period. The guy that was on was talking about how that um, uh, it was a challenge for him to have to come out as a uh, as a Jew and have to make these statements that he was making because the community would resist him and was resisting him at the time. So I only mentioned it because it was something that actually happened in real time. Uh, and because you had said that no one would have seen it that way, be they heretics, Gnostics, or whatever, that group of people who are not Christians had this as an issue in their community. So So I don't care care if, if the guy in your book refutes it. My point is, is that they had this idea. Well, let me bring some clarity to you because this, the concept of two powers in heaven is in what they call the second temple period. Okay, what I'm okay. reading, what, what I'm reading from is uh, out of the Bible, which would have been definitely a uh, pre first temple period, which I think would be a more sound witness. Uh, the, 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 I am not denying that there were people in the second temple period who uh, believed two powers in heaven, but I'm saying that, that is the beginning of the information we even have on them is second temporal based. And even first then from temple. that, it can't be established that this okay. is what all the people believed. First temple, second temple, those people, whomever they were, were not Christians and they were reading their book and however they want to, that's a family matter. <laughs> however they want to deal with it. That's on them. I don't care. All I was stating the fact was that in their community, uh, it was not just one point of view, uh, just like what we're dealing with now. There's not just one point of view. Uh, we have diverging points of view concerning the same scriptures that we're reading. So that was my point uh, in saying that. Um, uh, the, so, I only so far all I have is that God is God. There's no argument there. I also heard you mention the hypostatic union. Okay. So in this hypostatic union, uh is Jesus a person? Okay, thank you. We believe the hypostatic union, the one person of Jesus. Some people uh, play with the fringes on that as of right now. I would just see Jesus as one person, uh, truly God and truly man. All that is true of God as far as his attributes, his it's, it's his works of old, uh, is perfectly united, not mixed, uh, but united in perfect fashion. He is the seen reality of the unseen God. Uh, so I would not say, uh, I guess, go into the era of saying two persons that would uh, lie towards what people have historically classified as Nestorianism. But I would actually uh, take the verbiage of the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, he is one person 
with a rational human will and a rash and a rational, of course, the rational divine will, uh, not mixed, distinct, uh, but perfectly united in the one person of Jesus Christ. So he's he has two personalities. No, he has two wheels. If you unmute, I'm I'm not sure if I can hear you. I'm saying, are you saying he has two personalities? No, I'm saying he has two wheels, just like Chalcedon says. Chalcedon doesn't seem to make uh, good sense. The Council of Chalcedon doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. No, that doesn't make sense because you're saying that there are two wills. Okay. So this is what I'm asking. Is there, is Jesus a person? You're saying yes or no. I'm saying Jesus. Doc, let me let me let me rephrase the question because I uh, okay okay let me let me make this statement so that you won't misunderstand me and people listening will not misunderstand me okay I, the energy that is coming from me and that will come from me is not against Brandon I vehemently resist the doctrine that my friend represents. So when I'm asking him questions, I'm not asking them the questions because I am trying to injure him in any way. However, I must ask direct questions so that I can get direct answers because as we get the deeper into these scriptures concerning this doctrine, it is my assumption that we will see that this doctrine, it does not hold up to contextual understanding. I don't care if uh, it seems like, well, I do care. Let me take that back. I do care if it seems like I'm attacking Brandon. I'm not. The doctrine, on the other hand, I do not care about because it is not congruent with contextual strength. It does not have the integrity that it should have. And we can begin with the thought that he just said that Jesus has two wills, okay? Which I don't have a problem with there being two wills, except for the fact that we have one person with two wills. So this is why I'm asking the question that I'm asking. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm pushing back not to embarrass him or defame him or anything, but so that he can engage me and answer. He can say whatever he wants to say. I'm not taking it personal because this is not a personal matter. Okay, let's, let me do it this way. If we are brothers in Christ, and a lot of people uh, believe and assume that we are, if we are brothers in Christ, then we must look at this uh, contextually, we have a problem because uh, uh, we have one God, but we have two diverging perspectives of that one God. And so we must 
look at this doctrine with uh, uh, a, a fine microscope, fine tooth comb uh, as adults standing on uh, differing platforms of understanding and examine it. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not examining the character of Elder Brandon. I am examining the doctrine. So when I push back on him with the things that he says, I'm not saying it to destroy or to defame him. I am 100% attacking the doctrine. I do not believe that this is a sound doctrine at all. And so I want to prove that and he's going to help me do it. <laughs> well, perhaps uh, may, may, let me let me explain what I mean by him having two wheels. What I'm confessing that the one and the same Christ Jesus, who I believe is the Lord, he is the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in humanhood. He is truly God, truly man of a reasonable soul and body, constantial with of course, the Father, which I will believe be the divine nature, uh, according to his Godhead. Uh, each nature having, of course, a will. So in his divine nature, he has a will. And within his human nature, nature he has a will. I believe this is uh, thoroughly taught by scripture, and I don't see any other way around that. Uh, for him to be a true man, he would have to have a true human will uh unless the error that i should embrace or maybe or, or or do you discern that as one as believers we're wrong for saying that jesus has two wheels uh two wheels <laughs> you can he mute said, me my thing is free he said my will is to do the will of him that sent me he he in the garden he, he prayed, prayed to the Father, father and said to and the father, father, not my, my will, will, but your, your will. He didn't, he didn't say, say my, my other will. will. Well, well, hold on, hold father, father, let me let consult me my other will. will. That's not That's what not he said. The, the text, the text does, does not bear out, out that, that he has he two has wheels, wheels. Uh, except for to say that he submits his will to that of the father, which is congruent with what it says in Philippians that uh, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. No man uh, of his, uh, we have no power as human beings whatsoever to even assume that we could be equal with God. Yet this man uh, in his ability to reason thought it not robbery to, to be equal. And listen what it says in his very nature as God, but he took on the form of a servant. He had to take a, he, that was his will. And that will was with him and that will became flesh. Um, so he's God, period. He didn't, he didn't do anything different except he took on the flesh, but he's still God. So you would agree that Jesus is God, right?
is that not according to your doctrine that Jesus is God? I'm, 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 I'm missing it. Maybe if you're speaking, your mic is muted. In the interim, I don't know what's going on on that end, but in the interim, in the interim, okay. Okay, yeah, my computer was freezing. Okay, I'm not my sure bad. Why. Probably because you're, yes, you're running to YouTube. To YouTube. Yeah, I think I may have to just stop that one, but yes, I believe Jesus is totally God, and I would love to go over Philippians 2 with you because I think that's going to be helpful to uh, understand where we're, uh, we're disagreeing on some important points. Uh, but well, well, so, well, okay, so wait, so wait, is Jesus God? Yes, okay, yes, okay. So, so, yes, so why would he need another wheel if he's God? That's a very good question. Uh, I believe and I hold the doctrine of what has historically been called dithologism that within the incarnation, Jesus took on a true human nature. And in order to be God uh, manifest in flesh, he cannot simply have just a flesh suit because if he doesn't have a true human will, then it's really just Jesus in a flesh suit, uh, which is usually the accusation that we receive as oneness Pentecostals. Uh, but Jesus had a true human soul. This is why in um Luke, uh, I believe one, when it says, talks about him being able to grow in knowledge and in wisdom. Now, the question would have to be asked, how in the world can God, which I believe we both would affirm is omniscient, grow in understanding? If he grows in understanding, that's not God. But if he has a true human mind, just like us, because he was made like unto his brethren, that would constitute a distinct human will or consciousness uh, that this is the mystery of the hypostatic union, that both of these things are perfectly enjoined together into the one person. So we can not understand didactively how they all work, but we can see instances of when he says, I thirst, uh, that's definitely uh, a, an example of a human experience, but him knowing is the divine experience. So this is the reason why as a oneness Pentecostal, I would have issues with a view of sounds like you're affirming monothelitism, which is God only has one wheel, which uh, I believe is uh, problematic to the incarnation. Why is, that, why is that problematic if he has one will <laughs> you're saying that he has two wheels okay so when we start doing this two wheel one wheel two wheels and then we have to have two persons no that would be uh nestorianism and uh, uh well, at least historically i'm not really not sure who Nestorian is, is but but here's the thing, here's the thing. uh jesus is a person We've affirmed that. And we've affirmed, well, no, we haven't. Uh, is God a person? Or should I ask that differently? Is God a being? Well, yeah, I would definitely say that uh, to what we understand to be true. 
God is a being. Yeah, uh, he's being uh, and he's personal. Uh, So this being uh, is is a dual being at the the incarnation. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying, this God took on true humanity, which uh, would be still the one being, but he took on humanity. Uh, so he is truly God and truly man. Okay. Okay. So he's truly God and he's truly man. Okay. As a man, hold on, hold on. There's something that I want to do. I, I meant to do this before we got started, but I wrote this and I need to, I want to read it. I don't need to, but I want to. It says the oneness doctrine is not cohesive to biblical text. It cannot be read, spoken, or comprehended using basic grammar concepts. In fact, it resists the eight traditional parts of speech that make up our sentences. That's nouns, pronouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, propositions, interjections, and conjunctions that could and should be used in order to gain a textual understanding. In other words, the who, why, what, when, and where uh, in the context of what is being spoken, written, or relayed. I reiterate, in order for the oneness doctrine to prevail in the minds of its recipients, sentence structure is ignored, ideology inserted, and insisted upon, or it fails. It falls apart completely. Why do I say that? Because with what I'm going with what you're saying about Jesus being a person, because you so eloquently said that he uh, was a human just like us, and there was reasoning, I mean, wisdom, he growed in wisdom, okay? So if he grew in wisdom, like we do, and understanding, like we do, then his reasoning cognitive ability is like ours, or it's different from ours. So is his reasoning and cognitive ability like ours or different from ours? And I think you really brought up a good point. Uh, This is the area that he is like uh, us in the instance that he has the same type of cognitive abilities that we do. But I believe this is germane to his humanity not his divinity, because I don't think any of us would think that, you know, the divine mind is like our mind. So like us, uh, definitely, this is how he grows in understanding. Uh, He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Well, definitely both of us would not agree that the, think that the, how could we say the divine mind uh, learned something? So I know I know that's not something you would even believe or even ask you that, but he is like us and always in all things as it pertains to his humanity, which these would be things that will be temporal uh, in existence as a, as opposed to his divine existence, which has no beginning or ending. Well, I'm not going to extend my mind into the thought that I know the depth of God's cognitive ability 
uh, and how exactly that works. I will understand and, and say completely that his thoughts are above my thoughts and uh, his foolishness is greater than my wisdom. However, when I look at, uh, when I look at uh, the story of Abraham and God uh, allowed Abraham to go through the test of faith that he went through, uh, the scripture does say, now I know in speaking to Abraham about what Abraham would do. Was it that God did not know or did God learn something about Abraham? Uh, I don't, I, I can't say that, that I know. My reason for bringing that up is that from my standpoint as a human, it leaves me with a thought that maybe God did learn something, but I can't say that for sure because I'm not on that level to be able to know how God's cognitive ability works in that, how he does that. I'd like to believe he knows everything about everything and all of those things, but I don't understand why, maybe you do, why did he say this about Abraham, now I know, instead of, instead of well, I already I know already. all this and I'm just so helpful. Well, and and the conversation of open theism may be a little bit outside the the parameters of discussion, but I can say as most one is Pentecostals, uh, like for instance the United Pentecostal Church, if you if you took a stance of open theism, that would be deemed heretical. Uh, so I could not affirm that God learned something. I would have to affirm that this speech must mean something more than that, uh, perhaps. But I cannot. Um, submit to the idea that God learned something because that would contradict one of his divine uh, omnis, which is being omniscient. Okay. I, I, I can agree with you and that's all, but I just brought it up from the standpoint of cognitive ability, but we're talking about Jesus and Jesus being God, right? And you said he's 100% God. See, this is where we have these problems. Is because on the one hand, you're saying he's 100% God. On the other hand, you're saying he's 1% man. Well, and I didn't so, say 100%. I said truly. Because oh, when you say no, percentages. No, 100% human. Well, no, he is truly human because when you use percentages. What, what does what truly mean? Truly means everything that is uh, true of a human being uh, in the instance of uh all of the things that would make a person to be able to be understood as being human comporally and non-comporally. Uh, it's, it's actually creedal language and it would be an area I would agree with. I think when we say a hundred percent this, it, it almost sounds like uh, uh, when you say like, you know, can someone be 95% God? And I, I personally, I don't want to even lean towards language that would even uh, maybe suggest there could be, there could be percentages. So he's, you still, you kind of left me in a place. I don't know what truly means. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what truly means. Uh, when I use percentage and say 100%, that, that means he's completely, maybe I should use that term. Is he compute completely a human? Yeah, that, that'd be a synonymous of saying truly. Okay. So he's completely human. And he's completely God. Yes. Okay. So if he's compute completely human, then he's a person. 
the one person of Jesus is completely human and completely divine. Yes. Okay. So, but he's completely God. Yes. He's completely human and completely divine. Okay. From, from, from my standpoint of view, God is one God. God is what he is. God is not who he is. God is God. This is how come the, the, the people who have uh, an idea, they have a notion from creation uh, who God is. They, they say God, they use other terms for God, but they mean a higher being. Some people use that terminology because they recognize that there is something greater than they are. And they call that, that, is, that they sense that is greater than them. God, which they would be right. He's God. God is God. That does not explain, that does not uh, reveal the being that God presents or, or that he is in. It does not say anything about what is behind the veil. However, the scripture does allow us a small glimpse into behind the veil of the being that he is. And from the from my standpoint of view of con contextual scriptural reading that Jesus, and from what you just said, he's a complete human. His cognitive reasoning ability as a human person speaks to another person. Either he is speaking to another person or he is crazy. Hmm. That's a, that's an interesting proposition. And perhaps we can, uh, maybe I can explain what I understand to be truth coming from. Scripture. Okay. So, so, uh, okay. So, so before you, so, before, so you before you explain, before you explain that, that let's, 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 let, let, let me look at, and then I will, I will let you say whatever you want to say. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to rest. Okay. And let you say whatever you want to say. In John, the 17th chapter, verse one, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, speaking to the apostles, it was, he looked up toward heaven and said, father, the time has come glorify thy son so that your son may glorify you. Just as you have given him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorify you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now Father glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They belong to you and you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they understand that everything you have given me comes from you because I have given them the words you have given me. They accepted them and really understand that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying on behalf of them. I am not praying on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me because they belong to you. 
everything I have belongs to you and everything you have belongs to me. And I have been glorified by them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father, to keep them safe from in your name and have given, wait a minute, I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them safe in your name that you have given me so that they may be one just as we are one, so that they may be one just as we are one, so that they may be one just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them safe and watched over them in your name that you have given me. Not one of them was lost except the one destined for destruction so that the scripture could be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and I'm saying these things in the world so that they may experience my joy completed in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent into the world, so am I sending them into the world. Just as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And I set myself apart on their behalf so that they too may be truly set apart. I'm not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe me through their testimony, that they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you have, the glory, glory uh, you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Uh-oh. I am them, you and me. I am them, you and me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me, that you have given me, to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave to me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Well, and I really appreciate that reading. And if I could just kind of start from the top and I, one of the misconceptions that even sometimes I think some of my fellow oneness people do sometimes when we see the word one, 
we just kind of run at it full speed. We get excited and we like, oh, there must be oneness. But just like any word, I believe one has to be interpreted within the context that it's being used. As one person would say, uh, context is king. Uh, and I love the example, uh, in, to, in my opinion, if there's any example that really demonstrates the truth of the incarnation and the oneness of God in Christ is this reality, because the prayers demonstrate that this was not just God in a flesh suit, but that he was truly man, comporally and not comporally. That's demonstrated by the fact that he could pray, because if a man cannot pray, uh, he's not a real man, is he? Uh, I'll say that for Father's Day tomorrow. Ooh, that'll preach. Uh, so he goes on to say Jesus had finished saying these things. He looked up towards uh, heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Now, what I believe this glory is speaking of, definitely in context, is the glory of the um how can we say the resurrection and the crucifixion and all of these various things? I don't believe this glory is speaking of a glory that he had. Um, how can you say uh, before his incarnation in the sense of when he was a second divine God person? But I believe this is the glory that's related to the eternal plan of God. Uh, as one writer would say, as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And what's interesting, because if we are making this text a pre-incarnational text, what will make it difficult for me is that we run head first into two heretical doctrines. One, which would be canonicism, and two, uh, which would be immutability. Because now we have this glory economy that one person, the Godhead, divests it and gives it to the other person so he can become incarnate. Uh, kind of the problem that a lot of people take with Philippians 2. And it says, just as you have given him. Now, it's interesting. Uh, he refers to himself in the third person while praying. But we know he's talking about himself as a man, authority of all humanity, so that he may give life eternal to everyone you have given him. Uh, to me, I think this is pretty clear. This is Jesus Christ as a man. And because he is our perfect intermediary, he is praying and interceding for us because Hebrews tells us that he prayed in the days of his flesh. This is an exercise of humanity. The reason that I feel that this is an exercise in humanity is based on uh, the nature of what I believe to be an expression of the communicado idiomatum. Uh, which definitely means the communication of properties. Prayer non-comporally is a human function. I think it'd be anth an antithetical to suppose that God could pray to God. Uh, so when we understand what's taking place within this, Jesus Christ as a true human man, which his prayer in St. John 17 is contemporaneous with the other instances of prayer in the other gospels, particularly when he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Historically, oneness believers understand this to be showing his human will uh, that when he said, take this cup from me. Uh, why? Because as a man, he did not want to die. But thank God that he did, because as God incarnate as a man, he submitted the human will to the will of the divine will, which we believe wholeheartedly that within the divine nature, there is only one 
wheel. There aren't three wheels. There aren't two wheels. There aren't three consciousness. There's just one consciousness. And so as a man, he submitted the human will to the divine will and its instances like this within the high priestly prayers that further demonstrate that he was truly God and truly man. But let's go on a little bit further. At verse nine, he says, and I'm praying on behalf of them. Now, notice this language of intercession, because we believe that the hypostatic union continues even after the incarnation. And in so doing, this is how he mediates uh, or is the mediator force, because it is God in him mediating through the incarnation. I pray on behalf of them. I am not praying on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those who you've given me because they belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you and everything you have belongs to me. Why? Because he is incarnate in him uh, and they have been uh, glorified by them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Now, this is interesting because he's talking about the world here. Now, is he talking about the actual world? Like, uh, how can we say just the world? Because he's technically in the world still. But the world is related to uh, the, the, the going out for is related to his mission. Uh, he goes on further to say, not one of them, which you give me, shall be lost. Uh, OK, here's verse 15 is where I really want to hit on. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Right. L listen to this. But that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. You see the correlation here. They do not belong to the world just as I don't. This this is a similarity. He is aligning himself as a man in his high priestly prayers. This is the oneness that he wants his people to have. Just as he is submitted to the divine will, he wants them to be submitted to the divine will. Uh, and he goes on to say, and I set myself apart on their behalf so that they too may be truly set apart. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. So he is comparing the same sending that uh, he as a man has experienced, ex apostolo, uh, to complete the mission and assignment of the God man incarnate. He is praying the same thing for his human disciples. So the oneness he wants them to have is the same type of oneness, not in the sense that they would be God incarnate. But my personal opinion, I do believe this is uh, foreshadowing a little bit of the Holy Ghost, which would be the uh, closest that we can have uh, to a uh, perichoretic relationship. So within a oneness paradigm, when we look at the doctrine of perichoresis, which if ultimately originally had nothing to do with interpersonal uh, interpenetration of the persons of God, but it was a Christological doctrine that described how the divine nature perfectly unites and interacts with the human nature. I would see prayer uh, as going under the subcategory of the communicado idiomatum, which prayer distinctively and always is a human function. So in this, I see him performing his works as a high priest when he offered up prayers unto him that was able to save him. Uh, to me, I just 
see more oneness when I read this. And I know I didn't hit on every verse that you read, but you, you read quite a few. Actually, I read the entire chapter because I wanted to make sure that Jesus' reasoning and cognitive ability was not uh, uh, misaligned with you, you know, his complete humanity. Uh, because in his complete humanity, he was praying to the Father. Uh, and in his complete humanity, uh, with the text being such as it is, he would have to be crazy to be praying to the Father uh, yet praying to himself. Uh, it, it would seem like he is playing some kind of game uh, with the readers. We, we have this as a record of this man speaking to another person, uh, in fact. And if he is not speaking to another person, in fact, then what they have taught us in school uh, to be able to uh, parse out the main idea and to comprehend who is the subject and the predicate and all of these things is just, we have to toss that out. I think I've already said that because well, in these, these you saying, well, what are you well, saying? Sir? My, my question. So are you saying that the high priestly prayers of Jesus took place uh, as God, the son from his eternal nature, he prayed that I'm saying Jesus is crazy as a whip snap. If what these, uh, if what these verses that we're reading, or not, don't mean what they intend for us to from, gather from. Well, them. I'm saying that to understand better what you, where you're coming from. From our viewpoint, we understand the high priestly prayers of Christ to be an expression of His true humanity. From your viewpoint, are you saying that you believe the prayers is this Him praying as the eternal second person of the Godhead with that one mind? recollecting on his past experience as the second person of the Godhead. I'm just taking it the, the context for what the context says. See, in the context, he, he he's speaking to this other person and he's saying to this other person, give me the glory that I had with you. And from regular understanding, this uh, invokes in my mind a a, a time from the past when I was with you. Like if I was with you last week and I say, do you remember when I was with you last week? And that is what is being portrayed in chapter 17, that the glory that I had with you before the world began, this is, he didn't say, well, I'm here on earth and we really didn't have this relationship, but I'm speaking about this relationship, even though it didn't happen. Uh, and so this is what I want people to understand. Well, this would be, I guess my thing. So in the incarnation, you believe like I would believe, I imagine that he remained fully God in the incarnation that he didn't abdicate any divine attribute uh, such as, let's say omnipresence if that's the case wouldn't he technically have still been in heaven when he was praying uh but he wouldn't be see if i accept what you're saying okay there would really be no need for the conversation in prayer that he is having if i if i not that not that he's not 
omnipresent, but the fact that we have a record of him speaking of a time past. This is this is before there was a presence here on earth, before there was an earth, he's speaking of that time. And that's what that's what boggles the human mind. Well, the, the question I'm asking you, if he's fully God incarnate as a second person of the Godhead, would he still be omnipresent? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold, hold on. Hold on, Brother Brandon. <laughs> and forgive me for, for I'm chuckling a little bit because when you ask me, <laughs> would he be omnipresent? Okay. Okay. Are you saying that he's omnipresent before the foundation of the world when there was no presence as far as we know with presence. We didn't exist. The planet didn't exist. The universe didn't exist as we know it. And he says, I was with you at that time. And you're talking about omnipresence. Am I, am I, what am I? Well, am I that, that would be, I guess, uh, more of his eternal nature. But when we say omnipresence, we're speaking of being present in all places at once, which is, uh, what what they call the incommunicable attributes of God. He would not, uh, one of the characteristics of being God is that he is everywhere at the same time. Okay. So he, watch this, watch this, w w walk with me, watch this here, watch this, watch. Well, and maybe you'll understand what I'm, the reason why I'm having a problem with the doctor and I'm not having a problem with you personally. I have a real problem with the doctrine because the doctrine continues to boggle the mind when it comes to the context of scripture. What you're trying to, to say to me about space, time, and matter, what I'm reading in the context of what Jesus is saying is not applicable to what you are trying to, what your doctrine is saying to me. Well, now, listen, now listen, hold on well, before you say that. You hold on. Okay, okay. maybe you, you can tell me about how I'm misrepresenting you when I'm done, and I won't be long. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors, the prophets, in these last days, has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the worlds. Right? So before space, time, and matter existed, the sun created all of this. So there was no omnipresence. It was him and the father, which is here speaking of, he's speaking of in John chapter 17. So this is why I'm having an issue with the doctrine because the doctrine is insisting on there being space, time and matter before space, time and matter existed and trying to get me to think in terms of presence when there, the only presence that was, was his presence. So help, help. Well, again, I think you are getting his eternal nature confused with the word omnipresent. The word omnipresent means uh, to be everywhere at the same time. What I am asking, during the incarnation, did he still maintain the ability to be omnipresent? And I have a caveat question to that. 
And if you're talking, you're mute. I'm sorry. Hello. Yes, sir. You see, again, respectfully, Elder, respectfully, because you are, you're a very intelligent person, uh, 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 a, a, a scholarly individual who on any, maybe on, 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 on other subjects other than these two that we have discussed, uh, I, I, I respect highly for your biblical prowess. However, uh, the doctrine that you're presenting to me today is trying to- Pastor Sam, that wasn't the question I asked. Hold, I asked. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on. I, I'm, I'm gonna let you ask me again, but, but the, the challenge that I'm facing is when you, when you speak of omnipresence and you say he's everywhere, and I'm reading the scripture and there was no where, sir. The only where that existed was the where that the son is speaking of before the world began. There wasn't any other where to be. There was no other place. It was just no, there. there. That wasn't what I asked. Okay, so what's I your question? During the incarnation, was he still omnipresent? Hold on, hold hold on, sir. Sorry about that. Um, ask me the question again, sir. During the incarnation. Hold on. Was... Hold on. Okay, go ahead. Ask me. I'm sorry about that. Sorry about that. Yes, sir. During the incarnation, was God the Son? omnipresent was god the son omnipresent during the incarnation uh was the during the well see okay so when you say during the incarnation are you asking me during jesus's earthly existence was he omnipresent is that what you're asking asking? yes the incarnation Okay, oh. and frankly, frankly, 
to answer that question, as a human being, okay, as the complete human being that we spoke of, his physical presence could not be everywhere. That would not be, that would not be. I'm talking about his divine and his divinity. Was he still omnipresent during the incarnation? Well, if, if, if he's incarnate, okay, and he did not, um, you know, assume his, his divinity powers, but yet the divinity powers were present, I would think that his presence was with him. Okay? That's, you know, that's my question to that. However, that does not speak to the fact that this man, in his completeness, in his cognitive, reasoning, sensible, understanding self, is standing there praying to another person of the witch whom he says, we had glory together before the world began. This is where we have it. I'm trying to, and and this, and and I'm really trying to give a very sincere attempt to Help us to understand where we're coming okay, from. Okay, just take just take and, me there because just take me asking there because me a question is really just going to okay. It's, it's well, only going to lead me back to my point. But if you express your well, point, let me, then let I me can express come from it. that. Well, I would. Uh, I don't agree with Calvinists often, but I, I believe the doctrine of what they call extra Calvinisticum, uh, even though I know it dealt with. Uh, more of the some of the communal uh issues with them the lutherans but of course i would disagree on you know who they believe is incarnate but the doctrine of extra calvinisticum teaches that by way of the incarnation the divine essence was not exhausted that he was fully god incarnate but he did not cease to be god omnipresent uh because to suggest that all of his divinity was confined to the incarnation would be an abdication of the divine attribute, which at that point you run into an issue of him being a demigod or something or Arianism to that extent. So this is important to the conversation of the high priestly prayers. If we are saying that, okay, with the glory I had with you before the world was, and I need you to give me that glory because I don't have it right now because I'm not with you. Are you trying to suggest a spatial difference between them now? Or are you trying to say there is a difference in glory or an essence change or something like that? Which I believe when we understand glory in the context to mean the plan, I think it's very helpful for us not to run into the area of kenosis or to reject the idea of immutability. Oh, mm. <laughs> I, all of that stuff that you said, brother, uh, <laughs> it doesn't change anything, Brandon. If I answer your question however you want me to answer it, it's not going to change the text of Scripture. 
this is where I'm having the problem. But I'm not having a problem with anything except the text of the scripture. Uh, the man is speaking in terms of another person in another place in another time. This has to be overcome. All right. Well, um, well, maybe we could go to another text. I believe you mentioned Philippians two, and after that, I'll have a few more too. But maybe we could go to Philippians two. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh, when you mentioned Philippians two, uh, when it talks about let this, and it and it wasn't on my list. It was one of the. It was a text you mentioned, so I wasn't sure if it was something you wanted to discuss. Hold on one second. Sure, sure. Um, go ahead to Philippians, bro. Okay. And since you brought it up, I'll let you ask me the question because it wasn't one of my texts. I just remember you mentioned it. Okay. Hold on one second. Uh, welcome to the faith of the gospel. I want to take the time to appreciate everyone. For, I, want, <laughs> I want to appreciate everyone for taking the time to, uh, get a Valentine come. being delivered. <laughs> I want to take uh, the time to recognize everybody for coming by and spending your time with myself and the older Brandon um, as we discuss uh, the, the doctrine, um, the oneness doctrine of the Godhead. I'm cross-examining. I'm cross-examining the doctrine of the oneness doctrine of the Godhead, and I'm not cross-examining Brandon Nero or judging his character or even his salvation. That's between him and God. Uh, but the doctrine, uh, it is being presented as a Christian doctrine, as a, uh, as a minister of the stewards and the mysteries of God. I do not hold this doctrine to be a Christian doctrine, therefore, is my reason for standing against it vehemently uh, in the context of scripture. Uh, in the context of scripture. And so that's where we are. Uh, I want to, you know, again, thank Elder Brandon for coming by and spending his time to uh, uh, allow his doctrine to undergo the, the scrutiny of uh, uh, my skepticism. Uh, and uh, so 
I wanted to say that just a reset. And we're on our way to Philippians now. Uh, and I, I, I don't mind how, wherever you want to go, Elder Brandon, to, uh, I want this, listen, if, if my understanding of the Godhead is wrong, I want my understanding to be corrected. I'm not just examining this so that I can, because I'm casting out oneness, right? If my understanding is wrong, I'll adjust my understanding. But so far throughout the history of my uh, 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 saved life, I have not been able to justify the understanding of the oneness doctrine against the scripture. So take us to Philippians. Well, and again, I have it, but the reason I brought it up because it was a scripture you quoted. So I wasn't sure if there was something you wanted to ask because it wasn't one of the ones I had on my oh, list. Oh, no, I, I just, I was just mentioning, kind of mentioning it in passing about his, uh, about, about Jesus's divinity when we were speaking about the hypostatic union, uh, about him being God. He's completely God and completely man. Uh, the last uh, reference to that. Uh, instance was in, I was saying that if you asked me a question about him being omnipresent and I said that him as a human being, uh, he is, he, he had to be right there. Okay. And uh, you had made mention about uh, his divinity. And to me, uh, uh, you said something about them being, man, I can't think, remember the words that you used, but here's the thing. The scripture tells us that the word became flesh. Okay. It, 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 it said that this word was God and was with God. And this word became flesh. Uh, and in Hebrews, it says God created everything through this word. Uh, and my learned friends of the Greek talk about the Poston Theon, the face to face. Proston, yeah, yeah, But that's in really the not Hebrews, there in, in Hebrews chapter though. one. It bears that out because it speaks of the God saying to the God, "Okay, that your throne is." Uh, I don't remember the whole scripture, but that part is there, and that would have to something that would take place face to face, and which would be congruent with where we are in John chapter seventeen, whereas the man on earth, the 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 complete incarnate, is speaking to the Father about a time. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it a time, but when himself and the Father were with each other sharing glory so um um that's where i am so uh you can go wherever you feel like is going to um break that down and make it make sense because right now the only thing that makes sense is what he said in the text well thank you i, I agree any time we stick with what jesus said we're always doing good as it related to Philippians 2, are you of the opinion that this demonstrates a pre-existent relationship uh, that shows Christ divesting himself of divinity to be incarnate? Ask me that again. I'm, I'm listening, if but I, I don't know if I caught that. In Philippians 2, uh, like you compared it to the glory I had with you, uh, if the glory is no longer something 
uh, that he had and he's asking to have it again and you link it to Philippians 2, are you uh, suggesting that this was a glory that was abdicated uh, to become incarnate? No, you, you. we've already confirmed that he was completely God. And com then my question is, so he would not be asking for a glory in the sense of like a glory economy, right? This glory would have to be the plan, would it not be? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say no, uh, because, uh, you know, if I understood you right, in order for me to um, say what you're saying, I have to ignore what he said. I'm not going to do that because in order, if I do that, then I don't really actually have a Bible that I can trust. I have I have to go off of the top of my head and I'm not going to do that. The text says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have to, well, I don't know what that, you know, I would be remiss to assume that I knew exactly what that glory is. Now I have a premise uh, towards what that glory is, but uh, it's only from my finite point of view. It, it doesn't mean that I know exactly what that glory was, because when I think about that glory, here's the thing that comes to my mind uh, in 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 the in the um, in the Gospel of John in chapter one, verse one and two, uh, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And uh, like I've said, that that face to face. Some people disagree with that. Okay, that's fine. But in John chapter six, uh, Jesus says, no man has seen God except he that came down from God. He saw him, right? And so with that in my, in my thoughts, you know, this is, with that in my thoughts, with the thoughts about this glory that he speaks of, right? And then when I go to Revelations chapter 19, and I read that there is one sitting on a horse that is riding and has this name, the Word of God. He is the Word of God. That's a person. I can only assume that that glory, this is just me, isn't it? that glory was that personhood that he had before he took on this personhood of the humanity that he uh he, he now assumed, but that he was, from my point of view, uh, from just from my finite understanding, that that was a person who is now also uh, a person uh, that also has this human nature. Uh, so that's my that's just from my standpoint of view, from what I see. So, uh, well. Perhaps, uh, and, I, and I definitely want to touch on uh, Revelation 19 and some portions of that. Uh, in Hebrews 1, uh, it says, After God spoke long ago in various portions and diverse ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Did God speak to us through his Son in the, in the days previous to the last days? 
Well, in the context in which he said he has spoken unto us through his son, understanding that this particular uh, epistle that we have was written to persons who were Hebrew in uh, genealogy. And so when he says spoken to us, is in, in particular speaking, uh, this was a statement that was made so that it would be clear to the reader who it is talking to. So when it says speaking, spoken to us, now we read it and assume it's speaking to us, but in contextually, uh, it is speaking to those Hebrews. So am I, am I in the ballpark of what your question, your question is? No, because no, no, um, the writer says, and of course I do agree that he is talking to the Hebrews. He says in these lat in uh, various portions and in various ways, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. This would be the Old Testament. We even would see this uh, an example of speaking to Abraham, who the Bible tells us he was a prophet. We can see this uh, really uh, kind of brought out when he spoke to Moses in Egypt, another prophet. Uh, we see this all throughout when he spoke throughout all the prophets. Uh, it says God, which in Hebrews 1, God is readily understood to be the Father. But he is saying the uniqueness of the Son is that he has spoken to us uh, in a Son. Uh, and it's relegated to the last days. So my question would be, do you believe that God spoke to us through his son in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, it uses the term, the word of God. That's the term that it uses. And this, it is the same word of God that became flesh. So he spoke to us through his son in the Old Testament. My, my answer would remain the same. He spoke to us, uh, by the son, what, what the scripture says, I want to stay with the text. He said, in these last days has spoken to us by his son. So I, I would not make an attempt to overcome what the text says, which is what I think the problem with the doctrine is. It wants to overcome what is written. I'm not trying to do that in any fashion. I want to stick with what the text says because if I leave the text like it is, it'll keep me safe when I run into uh, uh, persons who are whose whose doctrine is not sound. Any sound, any unsound doctrine that you place on top of the text, if you leave the text alone and let the text speak for itself, will shake and grind and sift anything that is not according to what is written. Well, amen. Amen. Well, I, I will go to the next verse of that and ask this question here, which I always think it's interesting in verse uh, three. It says, the sun is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. Uh, in the King James, uh, it calls it his uh, person or hypostasis. Uh, how is the sun the radiance of? of the glory of God and the representation of uh, his essence. And why does it say, why is the, his essence there, the father's essence and not the son's essence? Oh, wow. That's a, that is a, that is probably the best question that you could have asked me. It is, it is my favorite question to answer. 
And I have to answer it this way. First of all, in the King James, <clears throat> well, I'll read in, uh, 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 in the Revised Standard. I'm, I'm using the Revised. I wish I had my NSB. Um, hold on. I do have it. Hold on one second. Let me, let me pull up the NSV. Uh, uh, King James is a, I love King James. I cut my teeth on King James. Um, it's like me and James are cousins. Um, but <laughs> I want to use the NSV. And that's uh, the New American Standard Version. I'm going to use the 1995 uh, version. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go to, where, where was we going? We were, going, we were in Hebrews, right? In verse 3, you were asking me out of verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made perfection of sins, purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so now understand that this would be congruent with the argument that we're having in that I'm presenting against this doctrine in St. John, because he's asking the Father, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world began. And the writer here in Hebrews is speaking of how that after he had accomplished everything, that this glory was restored to him. Now, I explained to you from one premise about that glory, right? But here is talking about the expressed image of his person. What about that? And that's why I said this is one of the, this is like the best question that you could have asked me. This is one of my favorite questions to answer. And here's why. Because in that same, in that, in, 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 uh, in the same Bible that we're reading here, we'll find in the Gospel of John, right? In the third chapter of John, here's what we here's what we find that I believe coincides with what is written in uh, Hebrews. Watch this, and you probably heard this before, because it's not something that is hidden. But listen to it. Um, in let's see here. Hold on, my 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 app is kind of doing number on me here. I need you to go. There we go. All right. Here, listen to this. This is he this is this is this is coincides with Hebrews. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay? Right? So God has given us, we just we just read that in Hebrews, given us of his son. And his son is coming expressing his love. And 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 when we when we read uh John, the the uh, epistle of John, we go to the epistle of John, chapter four, and we read verse eight. Listen to what it says. And the person who does not Love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And then when we go to verse 16, listen to this in verse 16. This is this is this is beautiful. This is why I love answering this question. Okay. And we 
have come to know and to believe the love that God has in us. God is love. That's two witnesses of the express image of his person. That's a witness that God sent his son to express his love. How do I know this to be true? And I'm going to say this and I'm, I'm going to rest. If we go to John chapter 14 and we go down to the last few verses, verse 28 in particular, listen to what it says. Verse 28. You heard me. Wait, wait a minute. John 14. Hold on. John 14. Hold on. John 14, all right, 12, 28. Man, this is the most awesomest question. You heard that it said that I said to you, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to what? The Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me to express the image of his person. I want, the, this is what it says in 31, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commands. Now, I'm almost wrapped up. I promise you, this is, I'm gonna rest the mic and let you uh, say whatever you think is important concerning this doctrine, uh, the doctrine of oneness concerning the Godhead, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you say because I didn't even think that 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 I would get to really uh, speak on this part because this is my favorite portion of the whole entire Godhead that He loved me and He sent His Son for me, right? So when I read verse 23 of that same chapter that. I presented in, in John chapter 13, this man who is completely man, who we have read in Hebrews is expressing the image of God, who in my understanding, the image that he expresses his love because he loved us. It says this, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. This love relationship, this close person was between the son, father, or the word and the father, however you want to put it, these two persons have a love relationship 
that the Father has expressed to mankind. That's the way I see it, because that's what the text says, not because I thought that up. I rest. Pastor Sam, do you remember the question I asked you? That's the answer to the question well, that you yeah, asked. Could you, could you just for, to just help me, tell, you, tell, you, what, what, tell me what other than is he expressed? Can you, can you <laughs> tell me the question I asked you? What was the question that you asked me? I thought I was answering. In Hebrews 1 and 3. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. When it says he is the radiance of his glory, right? And the representation of his essence. Why does the text use that to say that the sun is the radiance of his glory? The radiance is that which is seen of his glory, which in the Old Testament, glory deals extensively, uh, kabod, with the, his, who he is and the representation of his essence. Right. right. And, 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 and I, like, I, 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 did, I, did, I did answer your question, because, because in King James, says the express image of his person. Okay, so the Son is expressing the image of the Father, is what the scripture is saying, correct? Yes. I like the answer. Okay. Well, my next uh, question would be, I guess we can go to Revelation 1. Uh, This is always a very interesting portion to me. Uh, Revelation, the first chapter at verse 8, he says very clearly, uh, and I believe this is Jesus speaking, of course, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and who is still to come, the all-powerful. I would imagine we both would believe that's Jesus talking there, correct? We will believe that that it's God. God. Wait a minute. You don't believe that's Jesus speaking? What I'm saying is that that it's God. It's God. Do you believe that it's the person of God, the Son, speaking? I believe it's God. I believe it's God. And I'm saying this because from my standpoint of view, God is God. God. Okay. And I, John, let me see here. Let's see. I don't believe in I don't believe in three God. I don't believe in three God. One God. I don't I don't I don't believe that you do. Uh I don't, I, I've never made that accusation, but in the 10th verse, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write in a book, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me. And when I did, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, uh, was one like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe extended down to his feet, and he wore a white golden belt around his chest. His head, <coughs> excuse me, were as white as wool, even as white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. 
His face shone like the sun, shining at full strength. I almost put you in minds of Hebrews 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. And I am uh, and the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Death and Hades. Now, he calls himself here the first and the last. Right. But when we go to Revelation 21, we find the same language being used uh, of the one who is seated on the throne. Let me see here. Uh, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, and the first had passed away, and I saw the new heaven ascending from God, made like a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the son of throne, saying, Behold, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. All right? This is who going to be with them, God himself. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have ceased. And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, Write it down, because these words are reliable and true. He also said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the one who is a thirsty, I will give free of charge from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit all will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Do you believe the one that is on the throne here is the same one that's in Revelation 1? Why, why, why would I believe that God is not God? I mean, God is God. I'm not, I'm not, you're, you're getting no argument from me that God is not is God. Is this Jesus I'm not, I'm not seated on the throne? Did it say it was Jesus? That's a good I'm not, question. I'm not, let's keep, let's keep reading. I'm, I'm just, the, the, the re I, 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 I continue to uh, insist that I'm not going to say anything that the text does not, I'm going to make an effort to not, I may not might be perfect, but I'm going to make an effort not to say anything that the text does not actually say. Is Jesus the Alpha and the Omega? Is that what it says? So you don't believe Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. I didn't say any of those things. I'm just saying that when it comes to what the text is saying, I'm not willing to change the text. And here's my reason why. Because oh, wow. it seems because I'm 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 being elusive to um uh, questions that would uh cause it to for my answer to assume that I believe that the father is the son and the son is the father and so i have to stay with the text because i well, do understand i got a that verse thing. for you that'll make that clear from revelation 22 uh starting uh, at verse 6 then the angel said to me these are the rely these words are reliable and true 
The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon happen. Quote, verse 7, look, I am coming soon, right? I believe if you don't want to say it, I believe that's Jesus because I believe he's coming back like a thief in the night. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy expressed in this book, right? Uh, I, John, am the one who heard these things. Let me see. And the evil do must continue to evil the one who is right. Okay. Uh, these things, I threw myself down to worship at the feet of the angel who was showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do this. I am thy fellow servant with you and with your brothers, uh, the prophets, which are with those who obey the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy contained in this book, because the time is near. The evildoer must continue to do evil, and the one who is um, uh, morally filthy must continue to be filthy. The one who is righteous must continue to act righteously, and the one who is holy must continue to be holy. Then he says, look, I am coming soon, praise the Lord, and my reward is with me to pay each one according to what he has done. Verse 13 says, I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city by the gates, outside or without dogs, sorcerers, and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who practices falsehood. I, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. Does it appear that the Alpha and the Omega is Jesus, Pastor Sam? Yes, it does. However, like I said, I wouldn't say anything that uh, the text is saying. So if we go back to the top of that chapter, you see, Go back up to the top. We scroll on back up to the top. See, proof text is one thing. Leaving the text alone is quite another. Okay. I'm not doing anything to prove anything. Just let the text speak for itself. This is how come we continue to have problems with these um, with these foreign ideologies to the scripture. Well, see, in, in, in Revelations, same chapter you were in. It says, and he showed me a river of water, life, bright as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the streets thereof, and on the side thereof, the river, uh, and on the was the tree of life, bearing twelve manner of fruits, yielding its fruit to every month, and the leaves of the trees were the healing of the nations, and there shall be course no more in the throne of God. Wait a minute. And there shall be no curse anymore. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be therein. So from my understanding, what I read, there's the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. And as far as I know, Jesus is the Lamb. And as far as I know, Jesus is the firstborn uh, from the dead. As far as I know, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the first person ever to claim that he created everything 
and yet was born into everything. And when everything is ended, he is the one that will put an end to it. Well, and I'm really glad that you brought us up to the top of this text because I think it's a beautiful proof of the oneness of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, water as clear as crystal pouring out from the throne. Uh, and it is my understanding. I'm sorry, my thing here is moving out the way. Uh, my understanding here, let me see. Hate having bad vision sometimes. Uh, That's all right. All right. Yeah, some weed, weed, man. Yeah, throne uh, there is uh, in the Greek is uh, thronos, uh, which of course it's uh, it's a nominal, let me see, noun, genitive, singular, masculine. So I definitely believe it's talking about one throne here of God and the Lamb. Now, or is it, I guess my question looking at it, is it going to be? Uh, a split lamb like Albie has, like a big chair cut in half. You got Daddy God <laughs> on the right, and you got the other side. I mean, you know, I mean, the son. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just make this point on you because uh, it's it's still got the the numerical constraint of one throne, right? Flowing down the middle of the city's main street on each side of the river is the tree of life, producing twelve kinds of fruit. Uh, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And it says, and there will be no, uh, there will uh, no longer be any curse and the throne of God, right? And the lamb will be in the city. Now, when we get here, uh, it says his servants will worship him. Then at verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, earlier in the book, when the 144 are sealed, the name that's put on their foreheads is uh, the name of God. If this is an example of a duality, one, why are they only seeing his face? Whose face are they seeing? What it makes it clear that, hey, they're going to see the lamb. But later on, we have the angel of the same chapter that's telling you to only worship God, which, of course, for oneness theology is very clear. Why is there only one throne and one face and one name that they will have? It sounds like a fulfillment of the prophecy of um, Zechariah 14, where in that day his name shall be one. Uh, to me, this seems like the counter fulfillment of that, where it clearly makes it uh, uh, cohesive to the fact that it's not going to be multiple persons seated upon the throne. It's just going to be the one God seated upon the throne, the one God who is in chapter 21, the one God who is in chapter four. Uh, from a one standpoint, I think it's very cohesive. Uh, <laughs> the oneness of God is never in question. God is one. That has nothing to do with his person. He is God. Oh, Pastor Sam, by the way, the name is in Revelation 14 and 1 where it says it's going to have their father's name. Uh, but here we see that they the what, name what? in Revelation 14 and 1, it, the Bible says they have their father's name on their foreheads. But in this chapter at the top, it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay. Is this Jesus okay. on the throne or is this the father? They may the have two, 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 two uh, names. Two, two so names. You, yeah, you can't, 
repent from that. I haven't looked at that those verses, so I'm just going off of you just what you just said. So it would take, uh, it would take more it would take more of a study for me to give a in that day his name shall be one. But I'm just going by what you say. From what you said, I have to answer according to. So you made two statements: one about the Father, and and I'm assuming you're making one about Jesus here. So. They'll have two names in their forehead until I can. In that go, day, go Zechariah says, okay. his, their name shall be one. He shall have one yeah. name. I understand what you're saying, but I'm not looking at those contexts uh, in order to be able to answer to that. My challenge still remains with how I see Jesus and the Father. You, we still have not, we still cannot dispense with the fact of what Jesus said while he was here on earth about his existence before the world began, about the love that he had with his father before the world began. We cannot get rid of this. We cannot dispense with that by going to revelations. That doesn't change any of that. Pastor Sam, when we were there, you didn't answer any of my questions. That's why I understand. But, but, but we I, were we only my only thing is that you're you're saying to me that I didn't answer any of your questions, but the relationship has not been overcome. There wasn't anything that you asked me that overcame that relationship. That relationship is still there. That relationship remains intact. Jesus said that I want the world to know that I love the Father. I mean, it, it, what, 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 what it what seems it like, your, like your, your ideology is requesting of me is to throw that out. If that's not what your ideology is requesting of me, let me say this and I'll, and I'll shut up. If that's not what your ideology is requesting of me, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about what it seems like the ideology is requesting of me. It seems like the, the ideology is requesting that I overlook this and reject this idea of the son loving the father and the father loving the son in real time in their existence before the world began because the statement is made the glory before the world began love that we had before the world began and i love the father and i'm doing these things that i'm doing because i love the father so i'm saying that the ideology is trying to from my standpoint of view is trying to insist that i ignore this relationship i cannot whatever else Whatever else the ideology says, because it resists this relationship, everything else must be rejected. Well, uh, you have every right to embrace your presupposition. Uh, I can't take that from you. But when we were talking in uh, St. John 17, it became apparent to me that maybe the questions I were asking that maybe it, you were not prepared. So it was my feeble attempt to be polite to simply move the conversation forward, but we can go back and we can demonstrate that a oneness understanding is the most cohesive understanding to the high priestly prayers. But I was trying to respect you as a fellow elder. Cause I know. What no, it's like. don't, don't, don't. No, it's, me. I was, I, I, this is I not was, personal. personal. 
it's not it's personal. Not you you don't have to worry about me. What, what well, you no, because because I can't separate your belief from you as a person. So I am compelled to consider you still because I can't separate the person from their belief. Uh, well, so here, here's a challenge. Sure. Here, here's a challenge, brother Brandon. Brother Brandon, this was here before I was born. It has, it has nothing, nothing to do with me. With me. This, this text was here before I was born. This this was already written that the son loved the father and the father loved the son before the world began. It's the text Pastor that you Sam, have to be concerned about, not, not, not me. Well, we can, we can leave Revelation 21 because I think my point is being established. Can you show me in the Bible where it says that... Uh, before the word being, we had this love relationship going on. I, I'm, I, I, I feel like <clears throat> I feel like I'm in some kind of. <laughs> And this is the reason for for, 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 for me attacking this, this this doctrine because it resists the written text. If if in John seventeen verse twenty three and twenty four where it says, I wish I had a let me I, let me see if I do I have what else do I have here? This is N E T. That's that's the one that 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 uh some wonders people subscribe. Right. It, it, it was written by Trinitarians, by the way. Whoever wrote, wrote it, it was right, people right. who believe your position. Uh, right. All right, great. Uh, I and them, and you and me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me. That right there, you can't send yourself. Okay. You have loved them just as you have loved me. Okay, have loved, that's a past tense. And he gave a description of this, all right. It says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you. Knowledge, yes, knowledge of the righteous Father. Uh, I know you and these men know that you sent me. Again, cannot send yourself. I made known your name to them and I will continue to make it known so that, why am I making it known? So that the love you have loved me with may be in them. I understand that John, I mean, that what's written in John 17 is congruent with what and this is Jesus on earth, what he said again in John 14, but I am doing just what the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love 
the Father. Jesus said in 17, you loved me before the world began. Here, he's saying, I love the Father. And what this ideology wants me to believe is that this relationship was not a love. He said, you loved me before the world began in 17. Wants me to believe that this love that Jesus had was not because the Father had expressed love to him before the world and that he had commanded him and sent him. That's what this ideology wants me to believe. What, what, what verse uh, did you start at again? In, in St. John 17 or 14? 17. In 17, uh, I think I started 23. 23. And on down to the, to the end. Okay, let me let me see here. All right. There we go. Now, this is interesting. The And I started verse 22. I think that'd be even helpful. The glory you gave me. Right. So, again, if this is all bought into the context of glory as it is, you know, the glory that I had with you before the world was the true. If this is the form of interpretation you are embracing, you have a problem because if this is prior to the incarnation, this is a glory abdication, the kabod, which is uh, intrinsic of the divine nature. If you say, well, no, the glory is talking about the plan then you're interpreting it like us. So either or, it's not a good corner to be in. The glory you gave me, which would mean that it's a glory I don't have, but now I'm giving it to someone else. I took that same glory and I'm giving it to them. We're only left with one option to uphold the doctrine of immutability that this glory must be the plan of God uh, in, in the context of redemption. If you are using this as an anchor point to a pre-incarnate love relationship, you have read head first into error in terms of canonicism and immutability, which is a big problem because of glory, which is intrinsic to his nature is being changed, right? That's an issue. Uh, he goes on, I in them, you and me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me. Now, this is interesting. The world may know that you sent me. So the question will have to be, is he talking about ascending from eternity past or is he talking about ascending into his assignment? And you have loved me just as I have loved them. Father, I want those you have given me to be with you where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you love me before the creation of the world. And I believe this is an interesting point. Usually this deals with um, the gentleman. I uh, can't think of his name. I know Swinburne has made the uh, love argument very popular in modern times with the um, how can you say with the whole love argument, you know, if God is love, it got to be three of them because it take three people to, you know, three's company too, as I call it, uh, righteous father. But the, the question that has to be asked, does God love us before the foundation of the world? That That's not the question. What, 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 no, I'm, I'm, it's, it's rhetorical. Yeah, uh, it's rhetorical. God loves us before the foundation of the world. 
I definitely believe he does. But this is necessitate that we had an existence as a, a distinct person from him in eternity past. I don't think one could prove that. Uh, he loves uh, in the sense of that he is aware, knows all things. He says, Father, I want you to have given uh, uh, those who you've given to me to be with me where I am so that you so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you love me because of the creation of the world before the creation of the world. Righteous father, even if the world does not know you, I know you and these men know that you sent me. I have known your name to them and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with uh, may be in them and I in them. But earlier in the chapter, in the context of being sent, he makes it clear to us that just as you have sent me into the world, that I am going to send them into the world. This is the big problem. He is saying the same kind of sending in the same context is the same thing that's going to be used to make us understand the sending of the disciples. And yes, they did pre-exist before the sending, but the issue is, does this mean that they pre-existed pre-incarnately or before they were born? I would say that because Jesus makes it clear that this sending is in the same context to argue that this is from eternity past. In my humble opinion, the text does not hold it consistently. Oh, man, <laughs> man, I feel like I'm dealing with Hebrew Israelite doctor. I promise you, <laughs> this is stuff. It, it takes some, some philosophical jockeying with this doctrine to eliminate. You, you have to be on something other than what is intended when the mind when the human mind even takes up the uh, mission of erasing the relationship, I will have that, to stop that, you there. I, hold on, just hold on. no, no, because hold you on, made a you made an insult that I don't think is warranted. Well, I wasn't trying to insult. Well, no, no, I'm I'm letting, I'm you, know right I'm letting you know right now. I'm letting you know you did. Okay, well, I'm Please sorry. Please do sorry. not call me a Hebrew Israelite. Oh, don't yeah, that compare was, me. I believe. No, I just, I just don't want nobody even to walk away thinking that. I believe Jesus is God. I believe, I, I believe not all, but many of the. Uh, I'm done. I'm I believe many of their doctrines are antichrist. Not all Hebrew Israelites are, but I'm not with. I don't want to. Just like I wouldn't. Just like I would not call you a tritheist, I would ask not to be called it to be like saying that it's like dealing with. Hebrew I wasn't talking. No, that's not what I'm. I'm not. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about this doctrine. I have to do the same. I'm saying just like I won't call your doctrine tritheism. That's okay. I'm just asking not to even make the. No, 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 because I respect you as an elder. I wouldn't do that. I'm just asking not to do that. Let me reiterate. Dealing with this doctrine 
is the same thing that I have to deal with any other doctrine that assumes that it can erase the relationship between the very close personal relationship between the father and the son. It is a huge mistake because the apostles continue to talk about the father and the son throughout the New Testament. Okay. So now when Jesus, there's two things happening here in this text in John, Jesus is talking about the glory that he had with the father before the world began. He's also speaking about the glory that he shall take up on when he is resurrected. This same resurrection power, this same glory that uh, he receives is extended to every believer who believes in the faith of the gospel because we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. This glory, uh, it tells us, is in us, right? And that there's going to come a time. Let's see. If we go to if we go to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, it says, "But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body they come with?" It says, "Thou foolish one, that which thou uh, self sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest." Thou sowest not the body that shall be, but a bare grain it may chance of wheat or some other kind. But God giveth it a body even as it please him, and to each seed a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, and, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. Therefore, are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Therefore, uh, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. And uh, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Okay? It is sown corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also is it written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, uh, became a life-giving spirit. <clears throat> Howbeit, that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, then that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthly, the second man is of heaven. And as the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. And so, along with that, those whom he justified, he also glorified. The glory of God is now in us, waiting to take off this old mortal body so that that glory that is in us will come forward. Jesus purchased that glory for us. So, whatever you want to say about him loving us before the world, that's great. No problem. But what we're talking about is the Son and the Father having this relationship they have a relationship and that relationship 
stands intact or we don't have a mediator between God and man. We don't have a priest that is eternal, that's over with. And we